When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret (laughs) and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. This is the word of the Lord. Something we've been doing for the past couple of months is before we jump right into the sermon, we take a few moments to, uh, to pray. We've been doing like kind of a little bit more structured prayers that we're kind of uh, framing around the Lord's prayer. And so, uh, yeah, please, please uh, pray with me as we do that right now. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Father, we praise you. You are the one in whom we live and move and find our being. You are the great son of all creation who compels all of creation to orbit and witness your glory. You are the source of all that is good and all that is beautiful and all that is just. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, grant your kingdom space around us. May you bring blessings to our homes, to our neighbors, and to our communities. Father, please bless our nation, and please comfort, heal, and bless the victims and victims' families involved in the shooting that took place in Sacramento earlier this morning. May you bless the sick with good health, and bless the dying with your presence and with new life. May you bless areas of the world stricken with violence and give them peace instead. May you be near to all of those afflicted by every single effect of sin. Give us this day our daily bread. Lord, strengthen the work of the hands of your people. Give us the physical bread for our strength, but also the spiritual bread for our hope. Please grant us rest in all ways, physically, spiritually, and emotionally. May you give us all of the things that we need in excess and abundance so that we can continue to give freely to others who may need as well. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Have mercy on us, Lord Jesus. We know your word says that if we say we are without sin, then we are liars. So compel us to confess our sins to you and help us to repent and walk in freedom. With this same love, may we joyfully forgive others as we reflect the grace that is forgiven us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God, please protect us from the evils in this world, from evil thoughts, from evil circumstances, and even from people moved by evil. Protect us from the evil that exists, even within our own hearts. Protect us from the accuser who desires to separate us from the peace of your mercy that covers us. Please protect our church, protect our families, and protect our community. And please give us the confidence that no matter the situation we encounter, that you care for us and that you are present with us. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. All right, team. I'm picking up this week from where Andy left off last week. And as I kind of mentioned earlier, uh, Andy sermon was focused on the Great Fall, which, 
you know, many of us are familiar with, but for some of us who aren't, the great fall is kind of the term that we get from Genesis 3, which is, you know, the eating of the apple, the, the cursing of man, woman, and serpent, and kind of what brought everything into the world that was no longer good as it was originally created. And so Andy did a really, really rich and thorough job kind of getting into the, the complexities of sin, that we, we often tend to think of sin as like one person as an individual choosing to do something bad and then doing it. But Andy did a great job of kind of exploring that like sin exists not just in individuals, but sin can exist on cultural levels. Sin can be a thing that is almost like passed down from like different generations to generation. There are a number of ways that, that, the, that the black cloud of sin affects the world around us. In fact, I think that I heard someone say once that the doctrine of sin was maybe the easiest Christian doctrine to believe, and that's because it's just something that we see all around us. I thought of this analogy. Um, I'm not too polished on my uh, paleontology, but, you know, I, I used to want to be a paleontologist when I was a little kid, so I'm hoping this still sticks. But my, my understanding for how the dinosaurs died was that the meteor came and, like, smacked into the earth, but then it also kicked up this big, like, cloud of, like, dust and ash that kind of formed this bubble around the earth that blocked the sun. So even all of life that wasn't originally killed by the meteor was eventually killed by none of the sunlight getting through and all of the plant life dying. I'm sure Garrett can correct me after church if I'm wrong. Um, but that's kind of how I see like this great fall. Like it wasn't just like the original act, but it was this large like sphere blocking the light out that had such a great and devastating effect on life. And so now... Uh, my purpose and my goal for all of us is to talk about like what was God's response to this great cloud of darkness that was now sitting around the earth that was affecting humanity and human life in so many dense and complicated ways. I had a thought about a week ago. Um, when I was younger, I was a really big fan of this preacher by the name of Charles Spurgeon. And I don't want to be misleading. I actually still really, really love Charles Spurgeon. Uh, he was a 19th century preacher out of England. He was a hearty Baptist, cigar-smoking, whiskey-drinking gentleman. And what I love about him is that even despite the fact that he lived in an age where we don't consider that English very accessible anymore, you can read through a number of his letters and his sermons and even his quotes, and it sounds like he was speaking like even today. He had such a, a, a beautiful ability with the English language that even today it has so much value to it. But Charles Spurgeon had this quote that for a long time I really loved. And the quote was this, if I were to sum up all of my theology in just four words, it would be this, Jesus died for me. Jesus died for me. And I loved that saying. I thought like in, in so many ways, it cut through like so much of the complex stuff when it came to theology. Like I thought it was such a great way of just really censoring our theology and our faith on one crucial fact, which was that Jesus 
died for us. Over the past couple of years, though, I've started to feel like a little bit less like I vibe with this saying as much as I used to. And it's not because I disagree by any means that Jesus died for us. That is a like incredibly pivotal, like foundational idea to the faith. But I think it was the idea that Jesus died for me is the exact center of what it means to be a Christian. It was very focused on the death of Jesus in a way that removed anything else that happened in the Bible, let alone the life of Jesus. And I think there was something in, that, in me that had this like angst of it's very individualistic. It's my whole theology, my whole understanding of the God of the universe ends on what Jesus did for me as an individual. So I, I started getting some, some grumblings and I was like, I don't know if I really, really like this a ton or as much as I used to. And I think it leaves us with this question because as Christians, we know that the death of Jesus is not irrelevant to us. I think even people who look at Christianity from the outside, who aren't even involved in the church world, they would be quick to say that, oh yeah, Christians believe that Jesus died for them. I mean, you can literally tell by just the most iconic Christian symbol throughout thousands of years, the cross is very clearly representing the death of Jesus. But the question that it begs and the question that I'm going to try to answer for us today is if we place so much significance on the death of Jesus, then what was the point of Jesus's life? That 33 years, that little blip of human history where God himself walked on earth. What, what was the point of all of that? And as I, as I did my studying and my, and my working on this sermon this week, I've realized that in so many ways, Jesus' life from everything that he did was so specifically and intentionally restorative. It was so clear that Jesus' life in his actions, in his words, and who he spoke to was very clearly restoring everything that had been covered by this dark cloud of sin that we started talking about. So if I was, uh, I don't know, uh, Charles Spurgeon's uh, editor from back in the day, maybe I would have responded, okay, Charles, maybe I'd call him Chuck. I think we'd be informal. Uh, okay, Chuck. I get that Jesus died for me, but I'm going to counter that maybe the true summary of my faith is Jesus restoring everything broken. But we'll see if we can land there. So we're going to look at this in three, in three points. Here's our first point. Jesus' life was restoring the cracks in culture. Jesus' life was restoring the cracks in culture. Now, many of us are aware of this, but some of us aren't, so I'm going to walk through it just, just quickly. But the cultural setting when Jesus was born was very tense. There were a lot of divisions. There were a lot of like enemies. There were a lot of people kind of turned against each other. The Jews in Israel were living under captivity of Rome. And if you know the story of the Old Testament, the story of Israel living in captivity was not a new one. 
They were captive to the Egyptians when they were slaves. They were captive to the Assyrians and to the Babylonians and to the Persians and even to the Greeks. And so to be under the heel of Rome was not an unfamiliar feeling, but it did come with the same sense of like animosity, like this person is my enemy. And even when you think of other kind of cultural ideals. I mean, this was literally 2,000 years ago. I think we can imagine with not too much of a reach that this may not have been the greatest time in human history to be a religious minority, to be poor, to be a woman even. And so when we look at all of those things, all of those cracks within the culture, but then we see the engagement of Jesus there. Jesus spoke with and engaged and connected with people from so many different spheres of the world that he was living in. Think of the number of outsiders that would exist in a culture like this. To many, to be a woman would, would be an outsider because you're a second-class citizen. But Jesus spoke to women. He befriended Women, he invited women into his life. He honored them. He cared for them. I, I think often of just Jesus speaking to John and saying, Take care of my mom. Like, take care of her, please. There was, a, there was definitely a, a sense of compassion there. To a Jewish person, as we already mentioned, a Roman would be an outsider. Not only did Jesus connect, or, um, communicate with Romans, he actually performed a miracle for a man with position in the Roman army. And not only did he perform a miracle for him, he praised that man for his faith. What a jarring thing to consider. Jesus spoke to the wealthy and also to the terribly, terribly poor. He spoke to the sick and the sinful, to the demon-possessed and the lepers, but also the religious elites, to the socially influential, to the leaders. There was this accessibility that Jesus carried into his ministry that I don't think we've seen anywhere in the narrative of Scripture up until this point. There was a disregard for the types of social cues and norms and taboos that these types of people were accustomed to. He would speak to crowds, and then he would allow people to come up to him to ask him questions whether they were just asking for a word or for some wisdom or for healing, Jesus would allow them to come to him. I used the passage for our scripture sermon today, or our sermon scripture today, just because I love it. Like, Jesus is just there and he's so present to those who are afflicted with sickness and sin. And he's so available. Literally, the people are just coming and asking to touch the hem of his garment. Just let me touch your shirt, Jesus, because I know that it'll heal me. And Jesus is like, hey, I'm happy to. It, it, it is, it's the kind of tension when people say, oh, well, Jesus was just another great prophet. And I'm like, man, you have to understand these distinctions here. Like Jesus, in the way that he was so accessible, in the way that he was crossing all of these social boundaries and no-nos and taboos, like Jesus was a man who embodied what the prophet Jeremiah said when he said, if you seek the Lord, he will be found by you. There was a, a, an incredible love and accessibility as Jesus 
in his ministry was restoring the cracks of culture. That's my first point. Here's my second. Jesus restored through the call to repentance. Jesus restored through the call to repentance. It's interesting that if you look at uh, the book of Matthew and you get into uh, where it says Jesus was first beginning his ministry, one of the first things he does is he proclaims out loud, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Many of Jesus' teachings, as, as is true with most teaching, had moral implications to it. There were clear do's and don'ts in what Jesus was communicating, and they often involved a call to repent, to change, to, to shift direction. Now, repentance, I think, uh, for many of us can be an awkward phrase or word because it can become, it can, it can sound like very works-based. It can sound very legalistic. It can sound like something uh, that comes with judgment or that, comes from, or that comes with hypocrisy. Like, I think repentance for many of us, I think even especially with the culture that we have here at Mission, repentance is like kind of a dirty word. It's kind of an awkward word, like I said. I think that, so, so, but we can't just uproot the fact that repentance was a very essential part of Jesus' ministry. So what do we do with it? Here's, the, here's what I came up with, is that what would it look like for Jesus and his call to repentance to feel restorative instead of oppressive? Because this is kind of life in 2022, Right? Like we, especially like younger people, we, there's this like kind of groaning about just easily accepting the claims of authorities. There's this sense of like not really wanting to accept all of the uh, status quos of our fathers and grandfathers that we're just like, I, I don't really want to like just submit so easily. There's this fear and this concern, I think, that is really deeply embedded in our, in our culture that says, I don't want to just bow to some authority because I believe that authority could actually be oppressing me. But what does it look like to see repentance through a lens not of oppression but of restoration? I'm going to pause real quick. I remember a story my professor told in seminary. Uh, it's one of my favorite moments I ever had in seminary because it just kind of like blew everyone's minds in the classroom. But he told a story about Constantine. And if you know who Constantine is, you know, dude was a very, very polarizing figure in church history. Constantine was, a, uh, was the first uh, Roman emperor throughout the empire to become a Christian. And many will accuse Constantine or kind of charge him with uh, marrying the ideas of religion and uh, imperial power that led to a lot of corruption. That's kind of where when we think of like things like the Inquisition, things like the Crusades, we think like this was the guy who kind of kick-started a big problem of marrying church and state. And I don't think that Constantine is, is uh, unable to be criticized in some ways. But I, I do want you to think, think about this. Imagine you're a Christian during this time that Constantine, this big emperor, has just decided, I am going to serve the God of the Christians, this very small minority group who are often very oppressed. 
To be a Christian during this time period was not an enjoyable thing. That Constantine was, became emperor right at the heels of some of the worst oppression and discrimination that the Christians ever experienced in the Roman Empire. They were forbidden from taking certain offices. They weren't able to join the military. Pastors, bishops, priests were being killed routinely. Sacred scriptures were being burned regularly. Churches being torn down. This was a really scary time to be a Christian. And then Constantine comes in and he says, I now submit myself to not any of the gods of the Roman pantheon, but only to the God of the Christians. And the first thing he says is, it's legal to be a Christian now. You can't be persecuted for being any kind of religion anymore. Now, all of a sudden, this guy swooped in and just gave religious freedom to this enormous empire full of people and full of diverse groups. Another thing Constantine did, he said, hey, you guys know that really famous Colosseum where we're basically making slaves fight wild animals while we all cheer and laugh? Yeah, we're going to stop doing that because that doesn't seem like a, a really good representation of what Rome stands for anymore. So he stopped that altogether. And then also, again, we kind of mentioned this, like what it means to be a woman during this time period. Uh, at, at this point in time, literally, if you were to sexually assault a woman, there was no crime against that. Constantine said, no, we're, like, we're going to punish that from now on. Just randomly, oh, I won't say randomly, but just all of a sudden, this guy who has so much notoriety, and who, again, I'm not saying is beyond criticism, he brought in these changes that reflected a, a, a Christian and a, a divine restorative ethic to life in Rome. And you got to think, like, if you're a Christian living during this time, they're not feeding slaves and poor people to lions so everyone can cheer. You're not allowed to just do whatever with women anymore. Oh, and I, I'm, I'm also not going to get beaten in the streets for being a Christian? Yeah, this sounds, sounds pretty good. The reason I tell that story is because I think that when we see, like, moral commands coming from uh, an authoritative source, th there is this like tension of like, I don't know if I trust this person enough to submit to it. But when we see those types of statements and commands coming from someone who is good and coming from someone who loves us like God, then suddenly we can start to see changes and commands and rules no longer as oppressive, but actually as liberating to see the call to repentance to be a liberating thing that is actually a blessing to us and not just a way to keep someone down. And that's an important reminder because when we look through Jesus' commands and teachings, there are many that I think we would be really comfortable with, but there's also some that I'm sure would rub us the wrong way. But if we're looking to the source of these words, and not the words themselves, then I think we should trust them that if they come from a good and loving God, then these might actually be good things to listen to. And even then, think of what Jesus was restoring. 
Jesus was scolding, scolding the heck out of these religious elites because they were hypocrites in an, in, a, in an attempt to restore the authentic, genuine worship of God. He was calling them to repent, to restore something beautiful that had been made ugly. Jesus was restoring the idea that the needy, poor widows needed to be served and taken care of by, their, by the people around them. Jesus taught how not just to love your neighbor, but also your enemy, how to forgive people who do wrong to you, how to reconcile with friends, and also how to confront someone who's doing you wrong. Jesus was restoring the creative order of life. And and I love this, this saying, and I've said it before, and I'll probably say it another thousand times, that Jesus was not teaching us how to be good humans. He was teaching us how to be human. This brings us back to what Andy had said last week about Adam bringing sin into the world and then Jesus kind of being the the true prototype of what Adam was meant to be. Jesus was the true man that Adam had failed to become. Adam taught the world how to sin and Jesus is teaching the world how to repent and how to live and how to exist as human beings. That was my second point. I'll move into my third now. Restoring through miracles. Restoring through miracles. Jesus' ministry involved several miracles and supernatural displays of power. We, well, many of us are aware that Jesus did miracles. It's not a novel thing. What's interesting is that when we look at the width and the variety of the types of things that Jesus is doing, it's showing this incredible authority that Jesus as the Son of God truly had over all things that were all types of effects of sin in the world. Think, when Jesus heals a man whose skin is rotted with leprosy, He's not just doing some like one-time magic trick. He's showing that he has a divine authority over all forms of sickness and disease. When Jesus stops that big violent storm that had the disciples running around and, and, and freaking out, Jesus was showing that he had a divine authority over the weather and natural disasters and all of creation. When Jesus cast out the demons from the guy who was possessed with demons, it showed that he had authority over evil spirits. When Jesus uh, multiplies the food for all the crowds who were about to go away hungry, it shows that Jesus has authority over food shortage and over being able to provide for the, the bodily needs of his people. When Jesus resurrected Lazarus, it showed that he had authority over death itself. And and one of my favorite things was when Jesus was being arrested and the guards were seizing him, Peter drew a knife and cut off one of the ears of the guard. And Jesus healed that guard, showing that he had divine authority over violence itself. It shows that Jesus has complete authority over all of the things that afflict afflict the human condition, be them violence, disease, death, evil spirits, uh, 
bad weather, like all of these things. And on top of that, Jesus also consistently showed through his miracles and through his interactions with the people a a strong sense of compassion. It says it right in, in, in several passages here in Mark 8, right before Jesus multiplied the bread and the fish for the crowds. He said, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me for three days and they have nothing to eat. In Luke 7, Jesus sees a woman crying because her son had died and his body is being, like there's like a procession going through the city. And it says Jesus felt compassion and so he raised that man from the dead. Matthew 14, literally right after Jesus had gone away from the crowds to pray after John the Baptist had been killed, it says Jesus went ashore and he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them, and he healed their sick. In Matthew 20, it says that these two blind men came up to him, and they, and they pleaded, they begged him. They said, please heal our blindness. And it says Jesus felt compassion, and he healed them. So once again, we are seeing in this man not the actions of some prophet. This is not Ezekiel. This is not Isaiah. This is a man who in all of his actions and all of his words and every miracle is embodying the compassion and the character of God who is showing kindness and mercy to the conditions of the people around him. So the question we have to come to at this point is, okay, now what? Like, what's the point? We see that Jesus cared, that he healed some people, that, you know, he stopped a couple storms. What does that mean for us right now? Was Jesus just some magician doing cool things that don't mean anything today? That's a genuine question to ask. I like turning to John 1. The first chunk of John 1 is like really just like, uh, like stylistically interesting to me because it reads like the chorus at the beginning of like a Greek play where you've got these like groups of people, this like crowd kind of speaking in unison, saying like, oh, the hubris of so-and-so will lead to their downfall. Like they're kind of like prophesying over like the whole story that you're about to see. John 1 kind of does that in a weird way. It starts in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Speaking very, like, poetically, very, like, lots of themes there. Says that he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. See, that's an essential thing we have to see about Jesus, is that when, when Jesus came, and he lived his life, and he did his miracles, and he spoke his teachings, the, the, the little hints of tragedy that exists in the, in the life of Jesus was that people didn't care. People didn't respond to him. Many did, Many followed him, but, but countless did not, did not actually respond. Those, those who he came to save, those who he came for, did not receive him. 
But it continues here that as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. And to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then my favorite little verse in this chapter, verse 16, and of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. That, that is the tragedy of the life of Jesus, that the world would not receive the great king who came literally like from the heavens, discarding his own divinity, putting on the vulnerability of the human condition. He entered into it and was not even received well. Had to ride a donkey <laughs> into Jerusalem. Was like laughed at and often criticized and eventually killed in one of the worst ways possible. And yet Jesus is promising that from his fullness, those who believed would receive new life and would receive grace upon grace. So what is the anchor of Jesus's ministry and what is the relevance for it today? It's the two words that he said to countless people, to fishermen, to rich men, to Romans, to Jews, to women, to men. Follow me. Follow me. Because Jesus is showing us that all of these things that we've touched upon today were just these first fruits, just that little appetizer taste of what is actually to come. Jesus covered over all of these cracks within culture, and he's pointing towards a time when there's going to be unity and love and appreciation and diversity and not the type of marginalization that they knew very well at that point in time. And we still see today that there would be camaraderie and care and love that is not bound or affected by any type of racism, sexism, xenophobia, fear of others. Jesus spoke about repentance, but he's showing that there, this was just a glimpse of the great overflow of love, the death of selfishness, the death of the flesh and all of the sins that bind us and real life with real repentance. And Jesus showed us through all these miracles that he had control over all of these devastating things, but that he would give us real life that would repair everything from sickness to paralysis, from death to disaster. And his words for the tired heart were just this, follow me. Because in following him, we can receive the fullness of God in new life and then respond by giving freely of that life to the world around us. Because we can't save the world. I think all of us are familiar with that. We can't save the world as Christians. But we can build bridges between a lot of the social fractures that exist today. We can speak up for those who are being mistreated, whether it's on large-scale systemic ways or just some person that you know who is valuable and worth speaking up for. We can't cleanse our hearts clean of all of the, the sin that we're constantly manufacturing but we can still walk in love. We can strive for it. 
We can pray to God to help us to repent of the sins that that harm our lives and the people around us. We can confess our sins to other people. We can seek that type of community and fellowship with God in the same type of uh, separation and seclusion that Jesus often found in just time he spent talking with his father. We can enjoy things like that. We can taste that part of new life. We can't stop natural disasters, but we can keep driving to Lake Charles and help rebuilding houses. We can't cure all of the diseases, but we can try to help those who are sick. We can bring ginger ale to people who have bad colds. We can go shopping for someone that doesn't want to bring their germs to the grocery store. There are simple ways that we can seek to embody what Jesus was doing, not because we're saving the world, but because we're walking in the steps that he started for us and knowing that he'll finish that. And, and, all, and the whole point of all of that is not to become these like moralistic Christians where we just say, oh yeah, you know, I'm a Christian, so I just do, I'm just a good, do good things, just doing all the good things, like I'm a good person, moral, good, I just, Christian means good person, like that's not what I'm saying. Because I, I, and I, I, I hear this phrase a lot more than I, I should, but I hear the phrase, oh man, I just want to be Jesus for my coworkers, you know? I want to be Jesus for my family. I want to be Jesus for the people around me. And I just like, I get what you're saying in that like, I want to be kind and, and I want to be a representative. But also we just need to remind ourselves that like we literally can't be Jesus because we need Jesus. All we can do is try to reflect that same light that is emanating straight from him. And then when we get that opportunity, as we're loving people, as we're, as we're standing with the oppressed, with the hurt, with the sad, with the brokenhearted, then we can speak Jesus to them. We can point Jesus out for them. We can't be Jesus for anybody. Those that fall, those... Sometimes you start to read a line, then you realize there's some grammatical errors here. So it's okay. But our hope, our hope is that those who see us as we engage with this world around us, as we try to carry on in this legacy that Jesus started, is that we would be living out the new life that Jesus gave us and that this new life would be beautiful and compelling to those around us. And that we would give the greatest gift to the world around us that we could give, which is inviting them to the kindness, to the favor, to the care and the presence of God. And this is a God who we can see in the life of Jesus. So we'll close there, and I'll also... Uh, give you guys two invitations for the next parts of our uh, service. The first is an invitation to communion. Communion is our ability. I, I, you know, a lot of what we spoke about today was, was, was first samples, just a foretaste, just a glimpse. I think the greatest glimpse that we're going to experience during our entire service, during any service, is communion. Because we're literally preparing ourselves 
for the time when we would sit across the table from Jesus, from not just this dude who lived 2,000 years ago, but the walking, loving, caring image of God. And we would sit across the table from him, and we would eat bread, and we would drink wine, and we'd probably just, just chat. Sounds like a great time. I'm really excited for it. And so we get to experience that. We get to also remember this great sacrifice that Jesus gave for us. Because the fact that Jesus, Jesus was not wowed or surprised or thrown off by the fact that the people did not respond to his life of teachings and miracles and kindness. Jesus knew, and he told his disciples over and over again, yeah, I'm, I'm actually not going to stick around for super long. I'm, I'm going to go to the grave, but don't worry, I'm going to come right back. And then I'm going to give you a helper to stay with you. So Jesus, in, in this great act of love, didn't just bring himself into a world full of brokenness, but he allowed that brokenness to break his own body and to pour out his own blood. And we remember that because that was this act that gave us so much life and so much grace. So I'll invite you guys to communion. We're also going to take a couple moments right now for confession. This is just two minutes of quiet prayer. Uh, I'll start it off for us, and then we'll just have two minutes of complete silence. You guys can pray to God. I would say this is a great time to prepare yourself for communion. That's not something that we take lightly. Um, We definitely want to uh, encourage those who are Christian to take communion. The Bible actually says some pretty, uh, I wouldn't say concerning, but definitely some noteworthy things. Like We want to make sure that we are um, those who have put faith in Jesus when we come to take communion, and then that we're, we're, we're confessing and that we're straight with God, which means like if you just had some terrible argument this morning and you called someone some names that you shouldn't have said and you haven't actually brought that before God yet, this is your opportunity to do it. And then also after that, Maybe you should call this person and confess to them as well. But this is the time where, like, we don't want to just make our sins, like, super obvious and, like, we don't care about them. This is a time for repentance and confession as well. So uh, let me pray, and we'll take a couple minutes, and then we'll have communion. Mike will lead us in a few more uh, worship songs. And then there's also giving in the back. Um, If mission means something to you, if you guys are, are appreciative and love what uh, guys like myself and Andy and Mike and even uh, Danny and, and all the guys who are, who are supporting and volunteering here, if mission means something, I, I would really just strongly consider you, consider giving. We're not asking that as some kind of extra biblical like money ploy. That's not by any means what we're trying to do. But we do believe that the Bible does ask us to be like, kind and, ge- and generous and charitable givers. And we, you know, we need that to continue doing what we're doing. So if you guys feel like mission is a gift from God, uh, I would really encourage you to, uh, to give that gift back to God in a sense so that we can keep doing what we're doing. All right, let me pray. And then we'll have a moment of silence. Thank you guys. Heavenly Father, uh, oh God, I'm, I'm always grateful for any given Sunday. I'm grateful for an opportunity to just kind of sit and reflect on just this great gift. We know this was not something that was pointless for you. And God, I just, I just think of that, 
that verse from Jeremiah that we mentioned earlier, that those who seek God, like he will, he will allow himself to be found by. Like you are close to those who are seeking you, Father. And I pray that like we would be seeking you at this very moment. We would be seeking your counsel. We'd be seeking your presence, maybe even seeking your comfort. And Lord, just, just bolster us with the fact that we can confess our sins to you because we know that if we confess our sins to you, that you are faithful to forgive, to restore, that you don't hold grudges, that you will cast our sin as far as the east is from the west. So please help us to speak to you, help us to confess our sins, and uh, may we enjoy worship. May we enjoy that.